Amen. Thank you to Adam for leading us in worship this morning. If the men who are in charge of distributing the communion elements would come forward. The first Sunday of the month, as is our tradition, we take communion and remember the sacrifice that the Lord made on our behalf. They're going to bring to you both the cup and the bread at the same time. Do you guys not distribute them first? There we go, that's good. So you guys feel free to take both of those. We'll take a moment to reflect before we take the elements together. Thank you, Mike. As we know, the taking of communion does not mean salvation. We take communion because we already are saved. The sacrifice of Christ on our behalf has been made. We know that we are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The taking of communion is a regular time of remembrance, a time of uh, reflection on our own uh, sin and gratitude for the sacrifice that Jesus has made. So let's do that very thing. Why don't you guys take a few moments as the elements are being distributed just to reflect on your own soul, confess any known sin you may have before the Lord, and in just a moment we'll take the, commun we'll take the elements together. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 says it this way. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find a grace to help in time of need. And Lord, that is what we're doing this morning. We are reminded, Lord, that the bread represents your body given for us, that the cup represents your blood spilt for us. And because both of those are true, Lord, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us, tempted in every way, yet successful, who never sinned. And because he was willing to be sacrificed on our behalf, a perfect substitution, Lord, we can now approach your throne of grace in time of need. And God, we thank you for these truths, and we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says it this way. It's a familiar passage, one that is often used during communion. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And church, let's eat together. The scriptures continue. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Church, let's drink. It says, For often, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Now pray with me one more time. And Lord, we are grateful 
that we have the hope that you will come again. And Lord, until then, we are in mourning, uh, not because we serve a crucified Lord who did not rise from the dead, but Lord, because we are separated from our living Lord. And until you come again, Lord, we will continue to celebrate communion, but we look forward to that day when you will return and claim your bride, the church. And on that day, Lord, we will cease celebrating communion because we will be joined together with you. Lord, thank you for this reminder, and thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, before we get to the Word of God, and we will get there in just a moment, Romans chapter 8, and in fact, you guys can be turning there in your uh, Bibles if you'd like, Uh, but before we get there, uh, I wanted to recognize uh, a very special man to this church, and I'm looking for him, and I don't actually see him. He is here because I shook his hand on the way in. Uh, Where's Mean Gene? Where is he? Is he standing out there? Eugene, you're being beckoned. Ah, there he is. Gene, is it okay if I embarrass you for just a moment? (laughs) I've gotten permission from somebody over here. (laughs) So whether you like it or not, you're going to get recognized. Gene, come on up. Uh, Eugene Pontius, uh, you guys all know. Uh, And the first time I met him, he said, he said, my name's Gene. He introduced himself as mean Gene. And I said, number one, I don't buy that for a moment. Um, But he said, my name is Gene and my name is in the Bible. And I said, well, I don't remember the name Gene being in the Bible. And he said, it's not my first name. It's my last name, uh, Pontius. Uh, Eugene, as I understand, has been at this church from the beginning. Is that true? Actually, the church started in 1951 and I came in 1957. 1957. So the rock that I saw out there has an engraving that says 1959, right? Uh, Which was, my understanding, the beginning of the church. Uh, Gene has been here two years longer than that. So he's two years older uh, than even that that tower out there. Uh, And in that time... The church actually was down at 34th and Vallejo and then it moved from... And we were met also in the Wheat Ridge Grange. So they had three services every Sunday morning. One down there, and they came up to Wheat Ridge Grange, and then they came back down there. Is that right? And then this one was built in 1959 without the infill, and it was a U-shaped building. And so this building was built in 59. December yeah. 8th is when we started in this building. Is that right? Yeah. And Gene has been here faithfully since then, serving since then as well. Uh, helping with the facilities for over 60 years. He's been doing that. Uh, And so uh, I wanted to recognize him. Amen. To God be the glory in all things. Um, But Hebrews 13 also says to honor those who are in leadership in the church. And so we wanted to take a moment to do that. Um, We made just a small kind of certificate of appreciation for Gene. Uh, Over six decades, it says, of faithful service to Trinity Baptist Church. Uh, That's the front side. On the back side, and don't miss it, don't just hang it up and not look at this, because on the back side, there's a gift card to take your family out to dinner. Uh, I know that it's a very small token of appreciation, but Gene, we are thankful for you. So grateful for everything you've done for so long at this church. So that's for you. God bless you. We appreciate you, Gene. Thank you. All right. Well, we're going to get to the Word of God this morning, as we should. And so if you would, open your Bibles to Romans and chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I need to make a small apology as you're doing that. 
Uh, this last Friday, a couple of days ago, Friday morning, my son Chase and I, you know, Chase is 13 years old, he's going into the eighth grade. My son Chase and I um, uh, came over here to mow the lawn, mow and edge the lawn, and um, brought our lawnmower over from home and uh, some other equipment and things. Um, began doing it, it was going just swimmingly uh, until the heavens opened. <laughs> and you guys remember Friday morning, maybe, uh, it started raining. You know, my son is pushing that lawnmower and we we're doing great. We got about three quarters of the way done and, um, you know, he was uh, just, just doing great. And we were enjoying the time together. I was pulling weeds, he was mowing the lawn. And um, he uh, said, Dad, it's starting to rain. I said, ah, we'll be fine. You know, we'll get a little bit wet. It's not a big deal. Uh, and then it started to rain bigger and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon those drops of water were, were huge. I mean, they were huge. And he just said, Dad, I'll keep going if you want, but it's getting pretty big. <laughs> and so uh, we unfortunately had to stop in the middle, three quarters of the way through. And so I got to apologize for the look of the front lawn. Um, the very front looks great. Uh, the very back, you're going to have to kind of uh, not, not pay attention to. Uh, and so, uh, but it was a joy to be over here uh, and just serving the Lord in this church on Friday morning. Uh, Romans chapter 8, our, our guest speaker at Highland this morning, and I was there for our 8 o'clock service this morning, is a very good friend named Alex. Alex and his wife Betsy are missionaries of ours serving in Asia, and uh, he has a son, a 10-year-old son named Hugh. Alex and his family are in town uh, for the next several weeks. They're on a short sabbatical and training, and so... Uh, we have them as often as we can to preach in church. And so a couple of Sundays ago, I was speaking to his 10-year-old son named Hugh. Hugh is very mature for his age. He does not act or sound like a 10-year-old boy. He came to me after preaching a couple of weeks ago, and he said, you know, Pastor Danny, thank you so much for your message. And I said, you're welcome, Hugh. Uh, you know, again, a fourth, fifth grade boy. And he said, uh, I, I so appreciated these points about it. He'd been taking notes. Uh, and I said, thanks again, Hugh, you know, to God be the glory in all things. And and then he said, now, what is the church normally going through on Sunday mornings? Uh, again, it's an unusual question probably for a 10-year-old boy. Like, what is the church normally going through on Sunday mornings? He wanted to kind of keep track of where we're at at Highland. Uh, and I said, well, we're going through the book of Romans. And uh, he, he kind of got kind of both somber a little bit, but then also excited at the same time, right? And his face kind of lit up, this enthusiasm, this 10-year-old. And he said, Romans. And I said, yeah. And he said, Pastor Danny, have you ever read Romans chapter 8? And I said, I have, you. And he said, it is the best. It is the best. And I said, Hugh, I would be inclined to agree. I said, I am preaching at another church in a couple of Sundays. Hugh, what do you think I should preach? And he said, you should preach Romans chapter 8. Okay, now we don't have time this morning for all 39 verses of chapter 8, but Hugh recommended it, so we're going to do it. Would you guys stand in honor of God's word as I read the first four verses? Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. The word of God says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen, congregation? Amen. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nations, we humbly come before your presence with open minds and hearts. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit and teach us according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. Well, if you had the ability to visit heaven right now, if you could just for a moment pull the veil back on eternity and get a glimpse behind the curtain, if you could visit heaven for a moment and then return to earth with a new perspective, not only would your understanding about eternal life be confirmed, in other words, you would understand beyond all doubt that there really is heaven and hell and eternity really is real. And not only would you truly realize that because of the work of Christ on your behalf is God not ashamed of you and waiting to condemn you, but rather you would return with a greater zeal because you would understand that whatever man can do to you does not matter in light of what awaits. If we could see eternity, if we could see the presence of God in his throne room, if we could just for a moment see the paradise that awaits each one of us for thousands and thousands of years, we will dwell there and not here. This, this life, although probably feeling very long and despairing now, will seem like a little blip compared to eternity. We would come back with a different perspective. And that perspective would be that no matter what happens here, no matter the sufferings, no matter the temporary anxiety and troubles and trials that we go through, all of them will be so small in comparison to the good things that await. We would realize that in Christ, condemnation truly has lost its power. Like we all just said amen to in verse 1, death is no more. Just think about that. You know, we will live twice, right? Once in this life and once in the life to come. But for believers, how many times will we die? Just once. We will live twice. We will only die once. The death will be no more. Its sting will be removed. The Lord's wrath is absorbed. We just celebrated that in communion. The punishment has been paid and there is therefore no condemnation left for we who are in Christ Jesus. This Tuesday is of course July 4th, 248 years ago. It was 247 years ago that the um, Declaration of Independence was signed, July 4th, 1776. But 248 years ago, in 1775, on April 28th, the battles of Lexington and Concord were fought, sparking the Revolutionary War. The combatants didn't know it, of course, at the time, but those battles fought on the same day would change the course of history as American colonial forces decided to throw off English rule, and you guys know the story, revolt against the King of England. About 700 British Army regulars were ordered to capture and destroy colonial military supplies being held outside the city of Boston. Colonial intelligence had been tipped off, and so the supplies were moved. Rather than a cache of weapons and supplies, the British Army found instead a band of militiamen waiting. 
just as the sun began to rise, the first shot was fired. Pretty famous shot. Do you guys recall what it was nicknamed? It was the shot heard round the world. In total, eight militiamen and one British soldier were killed. It wasn't much of a battle. <laughs> Only nine people even died. It wasn't even really a skirmish, but it was the spark that lit the candle. It was the first domino that fell, and the greatest national superpower in the history of the world was born. Ralph Waldo Emerson, about 60 years later, wrote a poem commemorating Lexington and Concord. The poem reads this way, By the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here once the embattled farmer stood and fired the shot, heard round the world. He was the one who named it that. That first shot of the Revolutionary War became synonymous with freedom. It was the seed that eventually grew to become the United States of America. A mere 14 months later, in June of 1776, Thomas Jefferson would write the Declaration of Independence, which contains these now famous words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Liberty. It's a word that's used often on the 4th of July. You will hear it on Tuesday many times. It is defined and misdefined and redefined constantly. It is often invoked to stir the emotions of those who feel threatened. It is almost always understood too simply for the believer. The liberty that we as believers, the freedom that we will often settle for, is temporary and fleeting. In other words, even if we gained the liberty that we long for or hope for with every election, as we punch that ticket every time, whatever it is that we hope for, even if we gained it and all of our wildest electoral dreams come true, that would still, that freedom would still only last as long as these earthly lives, right? It is temporary freedom. But liberty, true liberty, lasting liberty, is only afforded to those who believe in Christ. We have a freedom that our unsaved neighbors and friends do not understand. Isn't that true? There is a liberty in Christ that the unsaved and dying world without hope does not truly understand. Without the Holy Spirit's work, there is no lasting liberty. But with the Spirit of God, there is complete freedom from both the penalty and power of sin. That's what Romans chapter 8 says. The Bible is the greatest book in the world. Amen? Do you guys amen at this church? Are you allowed to amen? Okay, we'll try that again. I'm going to give you another crack at it. All right? The Bible is the greatest book in the world. It is my opinion that Romans is the greatest book in the greatest book in the world. The Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the greatest book in the world. Okay? And Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 is the greatest verse in the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the greatest book in the world. If the Bible were a cathedral, 
And each of the books of the Bible were a tower in that cathedral, a great spire pointing up to the heavens. Then Romans would be the highest spire, and Romans chapter 8 would be the greatest tower, the highest tower in that spire, because contained within Romans chapter 8 is this shot heard around the world. And it is found in verse 1. Here it is. The liberty call, the declaration of independence for every Christian in the room. Verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you know Christ Jesus, then there is only freedom and liberty for your future. Never again a life of bondage to sin. Never again a a life of slavery. Never again. The freedom that your soul longs for can be found in Christ, the apostle says. Never to be condemned, never to be put to shame. And that phrase, in Christ, is one of the apostle Paul's favorite to use. It occurs, in Christ occurs in every single one of his letters in the New Testament. It describes the new spiritual status into which every believer is brought the instant they express saving faith. If you believe in Christ, then you are to be found in Christ. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14, the Lord commanded Noah, make an ark, he said. Make an ark of gopher wood. And I I had no idea that gophers were made of wood, but there you go. Make rooms in the ark, he said, and cover it inside and out with what? Anybody remember? With pitch. Do you guys remember that? With pitch. Like, well, pitch is this kind of black, tarry substance that they would use to waterproof boats, especially boats back in the day. One commentator on Genesis noted that the word for pitch in Genesis chapter 6 is an interesting one. The Hebrew word for pitch means to cover The noun form is a covering. Use pitch as a covering. Most interestingly, that word for pitch, a covering, is the exact same word used in Leviticus of atonement. It's the same exact word. Listen to the same word in Leviticus chapter 17. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, God said. I'm giving you a sacrificial system, and the blood of those animals is going to cover temporarily, until we get to the blood of Jesus, is going to cover temporarily the sins that you have committed. It is the exact same word, pitch, a covering. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life, Leviticus 17 says. Henry Morris in his commentary has said it this way, whatever this pitch may have been, It sufficed as a perfect covering for the ark to keep out the waters of judgment. Think about that idea, right? The the judgment was being poured out on the earth through this massive flood. Well, it's keeping out the judgment just as the blood of Jesus provides a perfect atonement for the soul. So when we drink those cups, right, we drink that juice, what we're saying is the blood of Jesus has acted like pitch, For my soul. It covers me. It keeps out 
the floodwaters of judgment. And when the ark was finished, you guys know the story, the invitation went forth for Noah and his family to get into the ark. Genesis 7 says, the Lord said to Noah, get into the ark, you and all your household. The Lord's invitation was to enter the ark and to stay inside of the ark. The Lord did not say to Noah, build yourself an ark, and then you and your family, like, fashion some kind of handles, like pegs, and drill those pegs into the outside of the ark, and then you and your family all grab one of those pegs and hang on onto the outside of the ark for dear life. That's not what he said. <laughs> he said, build the ark, and then do what? Get into the ark, you and all your families. And once they were inside of the ark, the Lord shut them in. Genesis 7 and verse 16. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut them in. Noah and his family, we know the story, were completely safe inside the ark. Now catch this. What it meant for Noah and his wife and their three sons and their wives, eight people in all, what it meant for those eight people to be inside of the ark and saved from judgment is what it means for you and I to be in Christ. He is our ark. He is our covering. J.B. Phillips has worded it this way. In Christ, God has placed us in a sphere. It's, it's, kinda, it's like one of those um, hamster balls. Have you guys seen those? Right? Little girl's got her pet hamster. She sticks it inside of this ball. It runs all over the house. Right? It's like he puts us inside of this sphere where his wrath can never reach us and where we are secure as Christ can make us. There is no more condemnation for sin. And that's how the greatest chapter in the greatest book, in the greatest book begins. It begins by reminding us that there is no condemnation by God. And if you were to read the remainder of the chapter, again, we don't have time for that this morning, but the chapter ends with no separation from God because the reader is introduced to a new character in the story, and that is the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 20 times in this chapter alone. And so allow me very quickly just to make an introduction. In case you're not positive who the Holy Spirit is or just need a refresher course, who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? We know that the Holy Spirit is God. He's not an aura. He is co-equal and co-eternal within the Trinity. We know that the Holy Spirit is a person. He is more than a mere force. He is not some ethereal or mystical spirit. He has a name. He's a real person. We know that he has tasks to perform. He does work. He convicts the world of sin. He seals believers for the days of redemption. And not only that, the scriptures say that he quickens us. In other words, he gives us life. Now look at verse 2. It says, for the law of the spirit of, what does it say? What's he called? You guys have your Bibles open? You guys have Bibles here at this church, right? The law of the spirit of life. He's actually called the spirit of life. And Titus chapter 3 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of reiteration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 6 and verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. 
The Holy Spirit gives life, but not only that, the Holy Spirit illuminates both the word and the will of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, For who knows a person's thoughts except for the spirit of that person which is in him? Let me ask you this, church. Who can tell me what I'm thinking? On this earth, it's only me. My wife is pretty good at guessing, all right? She's pretty good at that. She's, she can actually predict. Last night, she and I went out to dinner. We're both looking at the menu. It has become a pretty regular occurrence that when the waiter or waitress comes around to check for our order, she will order for me and for her, even though we've not discussed what I want because she knows exactly what I want. And you know what? It's unbelievable how many times she will order something different than I was going to order, but she was right. Once I get the food, I'm like, totally what I should have gotten. <laughs> She's pretty good at predicting, but can my wife read my thoughts? No, of course not. Who on this earth can read your thoughts but you? Well, nobody can. Uh, we can get to know each other very well and so make pretty good guesses or predictions, but nobody can read your mind. Now, let me ask you this, church. Who can read the mind of God except for God himself? Nobody can. Do you see the argument that he's making? It's again, it's, second, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Who knows a person's thoughts except the per spirit of the person in him? Nobody can. So also it continues, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Only God can read God's mind. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Okay, so here's something crazy. Nobody can read the mind of God except for God. But what God has done in Christ is given you who? The Holy Spirit, who will now live in you and dwell in you so that you as a believer and child of God can now understand what? It's huge. This is huge. The Holy Spirit's role in your life is to illuminate, to shine a spotlight both on the word of God and on the will of God. Does that make sense? What a gift we have been given. Do not idly pass this section by when you're getting to Romans chapter 8. The law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus, verse 2 says, from the law of sin and death. That law that we were bound by has now been broken so that we are now no longer bound by the law of sin and death, which was a law as immutable, as predictable, as unchangeable as the law of gravity has now been broken in our lives so that the Holy Spirit comes in and makes from us a new creation. Isn't that great news? I thought you guys would be a little more amped up than that because I'm getting fired up. This is good news, you guys. We can understand the word and will of God for us because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. Verse 2 says, not only have we been set free from the law of sin and death, but now the spirit of life lives in us, illuminating the word and the will of God. Imagine the enthusiasm with which the apostle would have been writing these words. 
If you had time to study this in its context and go back to chapter 7, you'll notice the despair that the apostle felt battling against his own flesh. And he just says, I feel like every time I want to do good, evil is right there at my elbow, willing me, wooing me, pushing me, conniving, manipulating me, tempting me, and I fail. You guys know that passage, right? I want to do what is right, but then evil is right there. And what I want to do, I don't do. But what I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. And you read that, and you go, man, he could be writing my autobiography. He's writing about me. I fail, and I fail, and I fail, and I fail. And now imagine finally getting to chapter 8, and he's writing these words for the very first time. And he says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That law no longer applies to you and I because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. That law of sin and death, forever immutable, unchangeable, and predictable, has been overridden by Christ Jesus. Imagine just for a moment that this was like a physical law. We, we know that we are bound by the laws of physics uh, the most famous of the laws of physics is which one? The law of gravity, right? It's always the one that everybody says first. It's the one that is, uh, and nobody gets around. We are all subject to it. We know if I had a quarter uh, in my hand and I flipped that quarter up in the air, that quarter would go up and then it would land on the ground because of the law of gravity. And if I walked down there and picked it up again and flicked it again, what would happen? It would land on the ground again. And if I did that a thousand times, what would happen every single time? It would land on the ground. But what if on the thousand and first time, I flicked that thing up in the air, and as it went up, Ed back there ran to the front and stuck his hand out and caught it. Like, well, wait. It didn't land on the ground. <laughs> right? Something more powerful than gravity in the moment, acted on that quarter and broke the law. Something with more power exerted its force over the law of gravity and stopped that quarter in its motion. And this is, in essence, what the Holy Spirit has done with us. The law of sin and death, immutable, predictable, unchangeable, has been overridden by something more powerful. The blood of Jesus Christ. And because of his blood, we can all be set free. We'll keep on going for the sake of time. Because like I said, I get fired up sometimes. and I'll preach for an hour here. Pick up in verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What the law was powerless to do, God did. The law could not save. It could not reconcile. It could not redeem. It could only condemn. That is what the law can do. And yet, God does all of these things through the power of the Spirit by the work of Jesus Christ. The flesh made the power of the law weak and therefore unable to accomplish what it promised, that is the redemption of man. Continue in verse 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. When Jesus came, his incarnation, becoming a man, becoming like us, condemned sin in the flesh. 
until that moment, the law honestly thought that no human being could perfectly fulfill it. Does that make sense? Because no human being ever had. And so the law honestly thought that it had absolute power over humanity to condemn every single one of them. But Jesus did what no other person can do, right? That's what verse 3 says. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He was able to accomplish what no other human ever had. He lived a perfect life, sinless perfection. For over three decades, Christ lived in a human body. He was made like us in every way, but without sin. He never once yielded to temptation. He never had a sinful thought. He never spoke a sinful word. He never committed an improper act. His very life was a condemnation of sin in the flesh. He was far more than a mere example for us to follow. I know that we have unsaved neighbors and friends who believe that Jesus was just some hippie guru who lived a decent life and we should, you know, he was moral and he was a teacher and we should emulate him in some ways. But if that's all you believe him to be, that leaves the veil unrent in the temple and humanity condemned. He was far more than that. He was God himself. And when the body of God was slain, the veil was torn in two and unfettered access to God was granted to those whose Christ's blood made atonement for. Again, J.B. Phillips said it this way, essential as his immaculate life was to the completion of redemption's plan, it is not his life that saves, but what? His death. He was meant to be more than a good example of how to live, the gospel writers even bear this out with their emphasis given to his death in the gospels. Anywhere from a quarter to a half of each of the gospels is devoted to his death, that one act. Because in his death, he condemned sin in the flesh. You pick up in verse four. And with this, we conclude. It says, in order that, in order that, that is a purpose clause, right? For what purpose? It's like asking why. Why? It says, so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. So that those who walk according to the Spirit have the righteous requirements of the law fulfilled in them. And you notice it does not say that the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled by us but rather they are fulfilled in us. Now, the verb tense there is passive, which means it's something that happens in us or to us. It's not something that happens by us as if it still remains our responsibility to perfectly fulfill the law. So let me ask you this question, church. Jesus is not only the author, but also the finisher or perfecter of our faith. One passage says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to do what? Complete it. Notice that text does not say, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to watch you complete it. He said, no, I began the work in you. I'm going to be faithful to complete that work in you. Your justification was God's work. 
Amen? You were saved by grace through faith, but guess what? You are also sanctified by grace through faith. It's not like God just started the ball rolling and it's up to you to keep it going. That's not how it works. Becoming more and more and more and more like him is by the power that he alone grants. It is the strength that he gives. Sanctification has been defined this way. It's the process by which a person becomes increasingly Christ-like through cooperation with the Holy Spirit. As we live according to God's word and as we submit to the Spirit's leading, we find ourselves becoming more and more and more sanctified, more and more holy, more and more like our Savior, which is our goal. We notice in verse 4 that he ends it that way. It says, those of us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, that is sanctification in action. We begin to comply with the Spirit's promptings and movings. Having your soul aligned with the Holy Spirit is like having your spine aligned at the chiropractor. Your job when you go to the chiropractor is to do what? Lay there and don't resist, right? Could you make it very difficult on that chiropractor if you wanted to? Yes. Could you fight against him and push against him? Could you even swing at him and make his job very hard? Can you? Can you fire your chiropractor? Yes. Can your chiropractor also fire you? Can he not tell you? I don't think this is going to work out. You're going to have to go find somebody else. Your job when you go to the chiropractor is to lay there and not resist. You have a role to play, but the work being done is his. In the same way, your soul being aligned by the Holy Spirit. It's his work. Your job is to commune with him and to fellowship with him and not resist against him. Through Christ's indwelling Holy Spirit, the possibility of a righteous life now lives within each of us. We can now walk in righteousness where we could not before. What is therefore left to each of us to determine is whether we will walk according to the flesh, satisfying its desires, or according to the Spirit. And church, this 4th of July weekend, can I encourage us, don't settle for temporal freedom. You can celebrate our freedom here in the United States. This is the greatest country in the history of mankind. Of course it is. But the freedom that we enjoy here is very temporary compared to what we have in Christ and in our fight for liberty. The Holy Spirit has fired the first shot. We read it there in verse 1. It is the shot heard round the world. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and Lord Jesus. What a promise that is. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for sacrificing yourself on the cross. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending your Holy Spirit to live in us and to sanctify us, to align our spiritual spines with your will so that we can walk in holiness and righteousness for our joy and for your glory. And Lord, again, we pray a blessing over this church as you are doing a great and mighty work. Establishing a new church here, Lord, what a joy that is. 
What a privilege to be a part of it. Lord, may your name be proclaimed to all the nations. And may through our small and temporary contributions to your kingdom, Lord, may you receive eternal glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.